most enduring memories I have of my childhood is something that my father would make us do every single April growing up in Massachusetts. The state of Maine is one of the few privileged states that along with Massachusetts celebrates this holiday every April. You know what it is? Patriots Day. Yeah, that's right. And for those of you who do not know what Patriots Day is, it is not a celebration of the New England Patriots. Um, Growing up, I I am actually old enough to remember when the Patriots were not a good football team. That was a long time ago, I know, a long time ago. But no, every year on Patriots Day, it's a memorial or a recognition of what happened during the American Revolutionary War as it was launched, started in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, there in 1775. And every year, my dad would literally wake us up before the crack of dawn and drag us some 35 minutes or so to Lexington, where we would watch starting at 5.30 in the morning. Can you imagine waking up a little child like I was five, six? I don't know how many years we did this. And we would watch every year at 5.30 in the morning a reenactment of that Battle of Lexington, what launched the Revolutionary War. It was actually something once we got there, we had to wake up early, probably 4, 4.30 in the morning, drive all the way there, stake our claim around the village green there in Lexington, and then we would wait for the militiamen, the American militiamen in all their uniforms. They were all different colored uniforms because they weren't as organized as the British soldiers. But they would come and they would talk and they would have their muskets ready. And then within minutes, you could hear the slow hum, the, 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 the small hum, the low hum of those drums beating in the distance. And you were looking down the road and you were waiting for those men neatly organized in a line in those red coats marching down to the beat of those drums. And you knew the British were coming, the British were coming. And then they would come up and the the, the slow, the low hum would get louder and louder and they would come onto that that green and they would have this little face-off with the militia, the patriots, the minutemen there who are the American rebels, and they had this face-off, and after a few minutes, somewhere out of nowhere, nobody really knows, history isn't really clear on this, somewhere, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came that shot heard around the world. And all of a sudden, they were engaging in battle with one another. And I was, um, these, these scenes were vivid in my memory. I did have to go back and actually watch a little YouTube video yesterday just to refresh myself of this reenactment. But what stands out in my mind is those very sterling red coats that were there, the British soldiers were wearing, of course. Perhaps you've seen pictures like this. They were all proper, and they fired off their muskets. And within a few minutes, they were charging after those Minutemen. And when the dust settled, the smoke cleared. There was, sadly, eight patriots, eight militiamen whose lives were taken during that little Battle of Lexington, and it launched the American Revolutionary War. Arguably, one of the most well-known and famous, probably the most famous revolution that ever took place as the United States won its independence from Great Britain. There's debate as to whether the first shots were taken at Lexington or back at Concord. Uh, Ralph Waldo Eberson 
memorialized those words, the, the words, the shot heard around the world, when he wrote a, a number of years later what was called the Concord Hymn. But you know, as I looked at those scenes and as I returned home and in my imagination, my imagination was captivated. You know, a young boy, right? Seeing these guns and these bayonets and these nice uniforms and those, those hats that they wore. It just captivated my imagination. But the reality is, as I reflect on that Revolutionary War reenactment that was memorializing the real thing, as I've reflected on the revolutions that have taken place throughout the world, there is one characteristic that is common with all revolutions. Do you know what that characteristic is? Violence. Violence. The Revolutionary War cost thousands of lives, the American Revolutionary War. A few years later, partly inspired by the American Revolutionary War, the French Revolution introduced what was known as the Reign of Terror, where they literally set up a guillotine there in a square in Paris, and they, in the span of a couple years, they executed some 40,000 people during the Reign of Terror. More recently, although still a long ways in the past, we think of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 in Russia, where Vladimir Lenin led his band of Bolsheviks as they were trying to overthrow the monarchy in Russia. And again, Hundreds of thousands of lives were taken. And so throughout human history, revolutions have always come as the result of violence and force. It's common to the human experience. You know, we're talking right now, we've started a teaching series. This is part four, and we have this this new teaching series called Viral, Unleashing the Revolution. And I want to encourage you, I don't usually promote, you know, my material or my creative experience very much. But I want to encourage you, if you've not listened to the other three parts, go back and you can go to our church website, bangorsda.org, or you can go on your iPhone and you can search for our podcast on there by looking for Bangor SDA. But we have been talking about this idea that in the end of days, and and as the the earth is coming to its climax, which I think it is, I believe it is, that there is going to be this revolution, this viral revolution that was started way back in the times of Jesus, and on the cross, he launched that revolution. And last week, specifically, we looked at what was so revolutionary about this cross event, What was it that set off and set in motion the most influential revolution that the world has ever seen, such that today there are literally two and a half billion people who follow Jesus? What was it that catapulted this revolution? And as we looked at last week, what we realized is that contrary to the popular religions of the day, and contrary to the thinking of those in the world around them, Jesus showed a different picture of God. He, in fact, redefined God in the minds of those who came in the, in the, the influence of this Jesus movement. Because as Jesus unequivocally declared, God is love. And God's primary way of operation is by living out this other-centered, self-sacrificing love. 
But as we unpack this revolution a little bit more, as we grapple with what was it that was so unique and what was so earth-shattering and world-changing, what was it that, that prompted this incredible revolution? And this week, we're going to unpack it a little bit more until before next week, we're going to kind of start getting into some of the more practical implications of this viral revolution. But I felt like we needed one more teaching to unpack what it was that was so incredibly scandalous and what was so incredibly earth-shaking about this Jesus revolution that he started 2,000 years ago. And so I want to look at a couple of uh, verses from the book of Colossians this morning. Perhaps you have a Bible with you. We're going to ponder and unpack this mind-boggling idea that the Apostle Paul shares in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look in Colossians chapter 1 and we're going to look in Colossians chapter 2. But you have to understand that in the times of Jesus as well, revolution was common as well. In fact, the Jewish understanding, the Jewish mindset had this this understanding of revolution. For example, 170 or so years before Jesus, they had a very well-known revolution called the Maccabean Revolt. To this day, Jews still celebrate this Maccabean Revolt. And what happened was uh, the Seleucid Empire had outlawed all Jewish worship, but, but the Maccabees, they would hear nothing of it. And so led by a gentleman by the name of Judas Maccabeus, he led this revolt against the, the, the Seleucids, and they overthrew their rule in the area of Israel at that time. And they set up worship. They cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, and they set up worship once again within the temple. And that is actually the reason that Jews to this day celebrate, what do you think it is? They celebrate Hanukkah. It's a celebration of this revolution, of this revolt that came, however, by using violence, as every revolution does in world history. Not, not too uh, close, be, just before Jesus came to, uh, uh, was born, there was another revolution, actually soon after he was born, there was another little revolt revolution that was started by this man by the name of Judas of Galilee. He actually revolted against this census that Quirinius had, had uh, uh, instigated, and he urged all Jews to not take part in the census. And they threatened that if you do not take part in the census, you would have your property burned and your cattle stolen. And so they, they had this uprising. Judas of Galilee was actually the one who started what became known as the sect called the Zealots. And in fact, there was a man, you may recall, who was one of Jesus' disciples. His name was, do you remember? Simon the Zealot. And so among Jesus' own followers, he had this mentality that this is the way it was to happen. There were Messiah figures that would come and they would liberate God's people from Roman rule. And so this was the thinking of the day. This was the mentality of the day. But we notice in Colossians chapter 1, check out what Paul, he is writing to one of those Jesus communities that has been, that has been uh, uh, propped up here in the first century. And he writes these words in chapter 1, verse 19, these words, For it pleased the Father speaking of God, that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. So Paul is here explaining that Jesus has every ounce of divinity that the Father possesses. And Jesus was a reflection of the Father. 
It pleased God that Jesus could reveal to the world what the Father's heart was all about. And so, as Jesus said frequently as he was teaching, if you have seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the Father. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look into the face of Jesus. And this is what pleased God. He said, I want the world to know who I am. I want the world to know what I am all about. And so Jesus gives us, Scripture teaches this, all different places, and it repeats itself over and over and over again, that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And so, again, if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. He had all of divinity wrapped up in himself. And Paul goes on to say, now check this out. This is one of the most mind-boggling statements that you'll read in all of Scripture. Check it out, what he says. He says, and by him, that is Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself. Now check this out. By him, whether things on earth or in things in where? Heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Please don't rush over that idea because that is such a a mind-blowing, earth-shattering idea that there was something that Jesus did that actually reconciled or literally brought people back into a place of harmony with him, not only on earth, but where else? In heaven. When Jesus went and he experienced that cross event, there was something about it that actually endeared him to others that previously had been out of harmony with him. In fact, what he is here saying, what Paul is here proposing is that there was some clarification that needed to take place even among the heavenly beings. That's what he says. He reconciled all things to himself that the cross was able to actually bring these heavenly beings into greater allegiance to and love for God. That this this revelation, this cross event... This self-sacrificial act that God did actually drew people, even heavenly beings, heavenly angels, into greater love for God and allegiance and devotion to him. There is something revealed there. As we talked about last week, we know that part of that is this revelation, this glorious revelation of of God's self-sacrificing, other-centered nature. There's something else going on here as well where God is able to to bring harmony and peace through that cross event, not only in this world, but in the whole universe. Check out what happens here. We're going to skip down to now chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Colossians is such a beautiful book that that brings out the, the, the cosmic realities of Jesus' life and experience and death. But check this out in verse 13. With the New Living Translation, he says, you, speaking to the the believers in Colossae, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. He said, then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. And now this is the part that just is really fascinating because what Paul is about to explain is this incredible reversal 
this incredible reversal of, of, of Satan's strategy as he was going against God. He says, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by doing what? Nailing it to the cross. And in this way, check this out, when Jesus went to the cross, when he set that revolution that day, 2,000 years ago, that Friday afternoon, and in this way, he, he did this. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. So when Jesus went to that cross, when he was nailed to the tree, what looked like defeat, Paul's going to go on to say here, he shamed them, that is these rulers, these evil powers, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I don't know if you can appreciate or understand the magnitude of that idea. But what looked like God's defeat on the cross, he actually used to turn Satan's sword back against him in the most stunning reversal of the plot that we could ever come across. Satan thought he had, the evil powers thought they had God on the ropes. And the very thing that, God, that Satan was seeking to do to destroy God was actually the thing that God used to gain his own victory. The other version says that he made these evil powers a public spectacle on the cross. And so what happens here is Jesus utilizes and he leverages in the most stunning and mind-blowing way a completely different type of power. You see, every other revolution has been marked by violence and force and coercion and manipulation, using guns and swords and, and bombs. And Jesus stunningly comes along and he actually turns what we deem as weakness as his greatest source of strength. And he gains the victory over evil forces and powers, not through exerting his power, but by laying it down. That's mind-boggling. This was completely revolutionary. If we could sum it up, we'd put it in this, this, this terminology. God's power, as revealed on the cross, spreads through weakness and self-sacrifice, not by force or coercion. This revolution that has been the most influential revolution, the most impactful revolution the universe has ever seen, did not come by God exerting his authority, not come by God insisting on his power, but by actually surrendering it over to others. There's this quotation from this guy. His name is Gregory Boyd. He's a, a pastor out in uh, Minneapolis. He puts it this way. He writes a book called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And his, his urging in this book is that we as Americans, and we can perhaps come back to this in the future, maybe even next week, come back and you find out. But he's urging American Christians to not try to utilize the authority and the power of the government to assert our, our morality and our ways. And he says these words, and I love this distinction. He says, while all the versions of the kingdom of the world acquire and exercise power over others, the kingdom of God incarnated and modeled in the person of Jesus advances only by exercising power under others. That's the distinction. There's power over. There's me trying to pull rank. 
me trying to control and manipulate people, me trying to coerce people. And, and Greg Boyd is saying, no, 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 the way that God operates is he comes underneath people and he incarnates his love and he incarnates his gospel and he tries to win people by love and persuasion and showing his weakness, not by trying to exercise his authority. He finishes by saying it expands, that is God's kingdom, it expands by manifesting the power of self-sacrificial Calvary-like love. And so friends, you and I, if, if, if we are kingdom people, if we are gospel people, we surrender over to the power of love. We don't have the love of power, we have the power of love. And we seek to live by the reality of that gospel. Notice what this other gentleman says, Leslie Newbegin, he puts it this way. Check this out. Part of the reason for the rejection of dogma, there's many people who say, oh, there's no such thing as absolute truth today. There's no such thing as, you know, what's, why do we need dogma and doctrine? He says, well, this is part of the reason why people have kicked back against it. He says, part of the reason for the rejection of dogma is that it has for so long been entangled with what? coercion with political power and so with the denial of freedom, freedom of thought and of conscience. When coercion of any kind is used in the... Now check that out. When coercion of what? Any kind. I want to submit to you that today in this day and age, and I can just speak for myself, we very infrequently use physical violence to try to exert our will. What I find myself doing too many times is using emotional violence against people where I'm trying, to, trying to, to, to appeal to them using external circumstances, where I'm trying to get them to do what I want them to do, not because they are freely choosing it, but because I'm trying to manipulate them into doing it. He goes on to say, anytime this, uh, any coercion is used of any kind, in the interest of the Christian message, the message itself is corrupted. The reign of God is present under the form not of power, but of weakness. This is what was so earth-shattering about the cross. It was a revelation of this reality that God is seeking to win us by love, not try to coerce us by force and power. I've shared this quote before, but I, and this is a theme that is going to come up. I realized, you know, I was looking back at some of my previous teachings, and I shared a, a similar sermon to this back in February. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I've already done this one this year, but we need to hear it over and over and over again. And I shared this quote back in February, but this is one of the most mind-boggling quotes that I've come across. It's from the, this classic book called The Desire of Ages. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God that the gloomy shadows might be lightened that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by what? Force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love. And love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. And here's the line. I love it. I love it. Only by love is love awakened. This is what God's revolution is characterized by. I would dare say that even many nonviolent revolutions, because there are some of those, any, even some nonviolent revolutions throughout world's history have often used tactics that are seeking to force behavior from other people that they would not otherwise choose had they not had those external pressures. 
I'll give you a very quick example, and then I'm going to share another story. I'm going to sit down. You know, sometimes it's pretty popular when a company starts doing something that we don't appreciate or we don't stand for. And so you know what we do? We urge a boycott. We urge a boycott. And there's many, you know, the left does it, the right does it, everybody does it. And I'm not saying, hey, if they're, they're doing something that, that you can't in good conscience participate in, that's one thing. But if we're boycotting to try to affect behavior change, we are not using the principles of God's kingdom. We are resorting to trying to get people to do something that they would otherwise not choose to do if they were left to their own devices. So you and I, in our own relationships, in our own marriages, in our own parenting, oh boy, our parenting. <sighs> our own parenting. This week, one of my children, I, I was thinking about this last night, I said, I probably shouldn't tell stories about my children, so I'm going to leave this child anonymous. <laughs> one of my 20 children was not wanting to do something. And that something that he didn't want to do was going to affect what I was... <laughs> he or she, I'm sorry, I'm just thinking I'm going down from the top. I'm going down from the top. I just, we just use he's in general ways, right? He or she. It. That child, she, did not want to do something that should they not have done it, it was going to affect what I was going to be able to do. And so this issue is not just about that child doing something that I want them to do. This child's behavior was going to affect my ability to do what I want to do, right? And I want to go out there and, like, control that child. <laughs> and the child actually said to me, you can't control me. <laughs> and you know what? The Spirit of God spoke to me. <laughs> the Spirit of God spoke to me. And I said, child, <laughs> you are right. I can't control you, and I'm not going to try to control you. And the Spirit spoke to me. This is a very isolated victory, okay? I'm going to assure you of this. This is a very isolated victory. The Spirit spoke to me and said, what you're upset about is having your happiness affected. You're not trying to urge this behavior for the child's happiness. And I just said, you're right. I'm not going to control you. I said, however, <laughs> I am going to appeal to you. Yes. But I, I didn't push it. I didn't push it. And by God's grace, the child did what the child didn't initially want to do. I'm not saying it was like, hey, everything's great and fine and dandy. But I have so many moments where I want to control the child. And so we use bargaining. We use manipulation. We use, we use rewards. We use the threat of punishments. We use... We threats. We do it all. We do it all. And don't misunderstand me. When a child is really young, they don't have the capacity to think abstractly, and we have to use those types of tactics. But the goal, the goal for every child, for every human being, is what someone has called self-government. 
Because as soon as that threat leaves, what impetus do they have to engage in that behavior anymore? And so what God is seeking to do is to grow us up in such a way that we are not using such tactics for any of our relationships. And that is what is so incredibly revolutionary about this Jesus movement, is that Jesus only, he only, he cannot, he cannot, lest he violate his own character, he cannot do anything other than love. He doesn't have other options at his disposal. He can't threaten, he can't bribe, he can't, because that's not his character. So this book that I've been reading on parenting, puts it, the author puts it this way, and I think it beautifully encapsulates what we're talking about with this Jesus revolution. What we see in Jesus, what we learn about God. Parenting is not a behavior control mission. It is a heart rescue mission. And that's what I realized recently is that I'm not after my child's obedience. I'm after my child's heart. And that's what God is doing with us. He's after our hearts. And only by love can love be awakened. No other way. So if we are those kingdom people, if we are living into the revolution, what will that look like in your relationships? What will that look like towards your spouse, towards your child, towards your employees, towards your classmates, your teachers, your students? What would it look like to embody the reality of this non-violent, non-coercive, self-sacrificing love that Jesus launched 2,000 years ago that Friday afternoon? What would it look like in your life? I want to invite you to just reflect on that throughout this week and um, try to live it out. Try to live into it.